All right, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Daniel and chapter 3. You can find Daniel after some of the larger or major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then you're going to run into Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. We are preaching our way through this wonderful book this summer, and I would like to label this message, True Religion, True Religion. Kids, I want you to listen, when this passage is read to you, listen for what King Nebuchadnezzar sets up. In fact, you might even try to count the number of times you hear that phrase, something that he set up, because this repetition in passages like this is a clue for what, often a clue at least, for what God is emphasizing. So listen for that as Sung reads to us from Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up, I'm sorry, (laughs) on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to dedicate or to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I'm sorry, may I use this? <laughs> My phone is. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and uh, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command 
and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make therefore I make a decree any people, nation, or languages that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb to limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon, the word of the Lord. Dear, good to hear God's word read together. I'm sure it happened other times, but in this past week, I can think specifically of two times when I became aware of it. First, I attended a brief preaching workshop and found myself discouraged afterwards. Yes, I'd like to serve people well. But it wasn't that. It was that I want to be seen serving people well. I want to be noticed serving people well. It was the me monster raising its head. Me, myself, and I wanting to be noticed and receive acclaim. The second time was with one of my kids. As we are having a little investment contest. So I put in $50 into a Robinhood account. Don't tell Steve Farrington I did this. And with this child of mine, we compare returns just for fun, the nominal amount of money. With Robinhood, you get instant feedback. Your balance is constantly changing. So I find myself checking and checking and checking. And one point, I was up 10%. After only two weeks, I had made $5. And yes, it went back down after that. But I thought, what if I put in a lot more money? All of that would be up, 10%. I was becoming what John Bunyan called Mr. Money Love in Pilgrim's Progress. Why do I tell you those two stories from this past week? To show you that I'm a lot like Nebuchadnezzar in this passage. And to tell you that you are as well. We want to identify with the courage of the three young men, and we should. But we are often, friends, more like Nebuchadnezzar than we'd want to admit, are we not? The king of the Babylonian Empire who sets up an image of gold 90 feet high. 90 feet high. Now, we don't know exactly what this image looked like. We don't know. But it seems to be related, it appears to be related to the dream he had in chapter 2. That dream was of a large image, the top part in gold, representing Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Then there was a silver portion, a bronze portion, and an iron portion representing, Daniel told us, kingdoms after Nebuchadnezzar. But in chapter 3, the image he sets up, catch this, the image he sets up is not gold, silver, bronze, iron. It's all gold, or all gold-plated, perhaps. Perhaps saying, this is my kingdom and none shall come after me. 
It is the kingdom, perhaps, of me, myself, and I on display. And all peoples, catch this, all peoples, nations, and languages are commanded to bow down and worship this statue that he set up. Did you catch that, kids? Anybody count the number of times you heard that? I think, I think it's eight times we're told this is the image or statue Nebuchadnezzar set up. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar provides a picture of self-made religion. Man-made religion. And self-made religion comes in many forms. After my preaching workshop, I was setting up a 90-foot statue of myself in my heart. In becoming Mr. Money Love, I was setting up a 90-foot gold-plated dollar sign in my heart. We, too, feel the tension between self-made religion and the true worship of God. Maybe not with 90-foot statues, but with money or power or sex or leisure, or appearance, or fitness, or politics, or you fill in the blank. It's any hope, any trust, any desire that should be directed to God that gets located elsewhere. Anyways, the primary allegiance of our heart is not Him, but something else. And yet, this passage helps us. Oh, this passage can help us, showing us what should Fuel for you and me the true worship of God. So having set the scene, let's unpack the story in two main steps. The first I would call the worship God deserves. First, I want to see with you the worship God deserves. A special group of wise men referred to here as the Chaldeans, and those are really like dream interpreters of some kind. They appear to be jealous of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because if you recall, at the end of chapter 2, those three gentlemen were promoted to be over the affairs of the whole province. It's a pretty, pretty nice promotion for these slaves, these exiles from Israel. So these Chaldeans point out, oh, king, King Nebuchadnezzar, when people hear the music, they're supposed to bow down and worship this statue, right? Or be thrown into the fiery furnace, right? We know some guys who are not doing that. They don't worship, verse 12 it says, they don't worship your statue or your gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar probably was trying to unite his diverse empire by having them all worship this one statue, this one image. So this is really an insurrection. He is defying, or they are defying the king, and they are working against the unity of the empire. So in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego summoned Hey, maybe you guys didn't get the memo, but when you hear the music, you must fall down and worship. You can do that right now or be escorted to the fiery furnace. And notice the end of verse 15. End of verse 15, the king says, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Wow. 
That's like throwing the gauntlet down to God himself. He assumes no God can deliver out of his hands. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's got a pretty bad case of, I'm kind of a God myself, thank you very much. And catch the conviction for true worship of these young men, beginning in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now remember, the first readers are probably God's people there in exile in Babylon, who to a large degree were exiled for their idolatry. And this statue is more impressive than anything else they would see around them. At the grand unveiling, it was a guest list of the who's who in Babylon, repeated a number of times. All the dignitaries, and then were given all the instruments that were used, all the pomp, all the circumstance. It's impressive. But these young men are determined to live out God's commandments like we find in Exodus chapter 20. Coming in at number one, you shall have no other gods. Coming in at number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. So these young men model what those exiles are to do in their own lives, saying we will not serve your gods. We will not serve the Babylonian gods. Or worship this golden image that you, a mere man, have set up. And with that conviction, they are quite confident, aren't they? Verse 17. Our God whom we serve is able. <laughs> Here's the answer to his question in verse 15. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. Yet, they're also, shall we say, realistic. They are confident, but this is not a self-confident presumption. This is biblical faith modeled in verse 18. But if not, but if he doesn't, we still will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. They're saying, in effect, if we die, that's okay. Death is not a big deal to us. Can you imagine saying that? Death is not a big deal, not compared to God. But if not, we will not worship your gods. There is a rather famous 20th century example or illustration a movie was made about this, but they did not include this particular true aspect. In June 1940, the British Army had been sent to hold back the Nazi advance in Europe, but the British Army had been forced to retreat all the way back to the sea. 
the British army was cornered in a place called Dunkirk. But Hitler, in an interesting moment in history, under the providence of God, almost inexplicably, Hitler paused his panzer tank divisions. And in that pause, a three-word message was sent from Dunkirk back to England. And if not, quoting Daniel 3, verse 18, and or but in our translation, and if not, and the British people got the message, and thousands of boats came across the English Channel and rescued their trapped army. Their message was, even if we are not rescued from Hitler's army, we will not compromise. We will stand strong. That's the conviction modeled for us in verse 18 by these three young men. Rescued or not, delivered or not, we're not going to compromise. God alone deserves our worship. God is a higher priority than life itself. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you have that conviction? God is a higher priority. He's more important than whether we live or die. It's a conviction that says the worship God deserves is the highest privilege in my life because God is the highest priority of my heart. I think that's how we could apply this. The worship God deserves is the highest privilege in my life because God is the highest priority of my heart. Just to make some application personally, consider where do you need that conviction functioning for you right now? Just make a personal connection. Anyways, like me, you are setting up a statue to self in the heart. Anyways, like me, you've got a 90-foot gold-plated dollar sign in the heart. Anyways, you see a hope, a desire, a trust that should be directed to God that is directed elsewhere. Here's, here's one way you can know. There's one way. By how you respond when you don't get that thing that you want. That can tell you. How you respond when you don't get what you want shows if you were wanting it too much, if it becomes a, a statue in the heart. If you respond in sinful anger because you don't get what you want, that shows you were wanting it too much. When you don't get the position you wanted, the peace and quiet you desire, the ease you're counting on this afternoon, the perfectly obedient children you expect, how you respond when you don't get that thing shows if you're wanting it too much in the heart. So we need this conviction that God alone deserves our ultimate hope and trust and desire. He, do, he deserves our worship. But remember something. Remember that someone else has already lived out that conviction perfectly in your place. In Matthew chapter 4, 
The devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of this world and their glory and says, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, the main point of Jesus' temptations, like that one, is not to show you how to fight temptation. The main point is to show you that Jesus obeyed in the face of temptation in your place. That's the main point. So where we fail, where you fail, he did not fail. That's your gospel hope. You in Christ are credited with the obedience of the one who only worshipped God ever and always. So God relates to you as someone who has always perfectly kept this conviction, only perfectly worshipped and obeyed the Father. In other words, this conviction that God alone deserves our worship should drive us to Christ and hope in Christ. For in Christ, we receive His obedience by faith alone. That leads to the climax of the passage. Secondly, the deliverance God provides. Having seen the worship God deserves. Secondly, see the deliverance God provides. This is the issue, remember? Nebuchadnezzar teed up in verse 15. Who is the God who can deliver out of my hands? Now we see the answer beginning in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in the face of the defiance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. So max heat and beyond. Give me all you got, Scotty. The furnace is so hot, the, the, the guards or whomever they are dealing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they themselves are killed by the flames. Nebuchadnezzar here cannot protect his own servants. Can God protect his? They're thrown into the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we read verse 24. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, the identity of this fourth figure is hotly debated. Some say it's the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus before Bethlehem. Could be. Others say an angel acting as a divine representative could be. Either way, either way, the point is the same, I think. The point is that God was with them in the fiery furnace. God with them, and that's a very important statement to make to exiles then and exiles now. Those exiles were suffering in what God called the furnace of affliction in Isaiah 48. That's how God termed the Babylonian exile that was to come, the furnace of affliction. Daniel 3 is an illustration of God being with his people 
in that furnace, in exile. In fact, in Isaiah 43, God through Isaiah, catch this, in the 8th century B.C., says of those 6th century B.C. exiles, Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, hear this, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame, the flame shall not consume you. That was written about the Babylonian exile before it happened. Don't you think that verse came alive for those exiles when they read Daniel chapter 3 and saw this divinely sent representative with them, with them in the furnace of affliction. That verse, Isaiah 43, 2, went 3D, Dolby sound and technicolor. God saying, I'm with my people in their exile and he is still with exiles today. He is with you. Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins died recently. In 1969, he was in orbit around the moon for 20 hours as fellow astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin made the first moon landing. So you've heard of Armstrong and Aldrin, perhaps not Michael Collins. He was called the loneliest man in history the loneliest man in history because he was out there in space orbiting the moon all by himself. Listen, in your trials, in your difficulties, in your suffering, you're never like that, Christian. Orbiting that situation all by your lonesome. You're never like that. He is always with you. Hold on to that thought. I'm going to come back to it in a moment. Nebuchadnezzar calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the furnace and sees in verse 27, the fire, quote, had no power over their bodies. Sounds like Isaiah 43 too. Not a hair on their head was singed. A wonderful Miracle takes place because God is a deliverer. Do you believe that? God is a deliverer. Now, will he deliver us from every trial and difficulty in this life? Is that how we should apply this? Is this passage a guarantee that God will deliver us from every danger and not a hair of your head will ever be singed? Well, no. That's presumption, not biblical faith. And yet, and yet, on the long-term horizon, look with me on the long-term horizon, God always delivers his people. Because we know God with us, not as a divinely sent figure in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. We know God with us, Emmanuel, as Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh. So as an analogy, I would call it an analogy. As an analogy to Daniel 3 and this figure in the furnace, we can say that Christ 
has already been with us in the furnace of judgment. As an analogy, we can say Christ actually represented us in the furnace of judgment that we might experience the ultimate deliverance from wrath and hell. Track with me. Because he hung on that cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he stood in that furnace in our place enduring God's just judgment, paying for our sins in full because he was with us in that sense. We know the greatest deliverance possible. We now say with the Apostle Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because God is a deliverer in Christ. Doesn't that, friends, doesn't that gospel deliverance fuel worship for you? So make make some application. Make some present-day connection. These guys are delivered from the fiery furnace. That's great. But doesn't our far greater deliverance in Christ make you want to praise Him and enjoy Him all the more? God does deliver His people eventually, fully, and ultimately so. Let the deliverance God provides fuel the worship Fuel the worship God deserves. I think that could be a takeaway for us in our present day, in our contemporary situation. That the deliverance God provides in Christ, in Christ, fuel the worship God deserves. That's the climax of the story. That's the main point. But there is an interesting ending. Look at the ending with me, please. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God. Notice this. This polytheist king. Polytheistic king. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Now, A wonderful statement. I don't think that means Nebuchadnezzar is a true worshiper of God yet, as we'll see in the next chapter. Come back next week. But I would say this. I think Nebuchadnezzar is starting to move in the right direction. (laughs) He's beginning to head in the right direction. And if you are here and you're not yet a Christian, I would urge you to do the same. To realize there is a God who can deliver you from your greatest predicament. Because you're going to face death, and I'm going to face death. And the Bible says, after that comes judgment. But one can rescue you. One took your place, if you will believe. Bearing your sins that you and I, you and I have committed against God and so deserve His judgment bearing your sins if you believe. And so turn to him, I encourage you, I urge you, and trust in Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar moves in the right direction and then, in effect, tells everyone else to do the same. (laughs) Verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree. Notice this. Any people, nation, or language, any people, nation, or language 
that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. In the chapter, beginning of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar starts out wanting, do you recall, all peoples, nations, languages, worshiping the image, worshiping the statue. I'm going to unify my kingdom, my diverse kingdom, all the peoples in my kingdom. You're going to worship this one statue. That's where he starts. But now, he says, you better not speak against their God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to unite his empire. But all along, someone else is building his own empire. And at the end of the Bible, the Apostle John sees all peoples, nations, languages, worshiping the true king of kings. Revelation chapter 7. John writes, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, listen, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Doesn't that sound like Daniel 3? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, there is that ultimate deliverance for all worshipers of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, turn away again and again from all self-made religion, just like I need to do. Turn away from the trophies to self. Make the ultimate priority of your heart not money, not success, not power, not fame, not ease, but Him. And do so fueled by the good news of this delivering God in Christ. Worship Him fueled by gospel promises, fueled by good news in Christ. Praise the one, praise the one who has delivered you in the greatest sense, taking your place in judgment. For Christian, you will join that multitude, that great multitude no one can number, worshiping the Lamb, being satisfied in the Lamb, for only He can deliver like that. Let the deliverance God provides in Christ fuel the worship God deserves right now. Let's pray to Him.